there was a time when I was here at Martin the first time, and we were pitching Al Gore's Alliance for Climate Protection, where he had, was using the Nobel Prize money from his movie about towards democratizing the green movement. And at the same time, we were we were pitching Walmart. And we left a meeting with Al Gore, and we were going to a meeting with Walmart, and I was in an elevator with Mike Hughes. And Mike said, if Walmart wanted to right now, just say to all brands selling deodorant that they have to take the packaging off their deodorant in order to maximize more product fitting on the shelves. They could do more to remove landfills than anything we could do with the $1 million that Al Gore had brought to the table, even though his heart and he had all the things, he just didn't have the scale and impact that Walmart did. And it was this really humbling moment when you realize Walmart could do more to democratize the green movement than Al Gore ever could. And it made me feel inspired as an agency person because I thought to myself, we have the ability to impact how people view things. Mike also had this quote, and I think you and I talked about it, Alex, last time he said, you can argue that the institution with the greatest influence on our culture today is not the federal government or the church, but the corporation. And while that may be good or bad, what's not debatable is that the $400 billion that is spent annually to project the voice of the corporation makes it a very powerful voice, and we can make it a better voice. Welcome to Tech by Design. Design is passion. Design is energy. Design is enthusiasm. On these episodes, we'll talk to people who exude all those things about the products they build. Come join us. Welcome everyone to Tech by Design. Today on the show, we have Kristen Cavallo, CEO of the Martin Agency. You may know the Martin Agency as Adweek's 2021 US Agency of the Year. And they've actually won that award back to back years. One of the few agencies to do that. Uh, it's an incredible win for the Martin Agency, and it's also a shining star for the city of Richmond. And we're going to talk to her about what those driving factors are, how the Martin Agency designs, how they design for technology, and what she sees in terms of designing for leadership and the city of Richmond, to be frank. But Alex, give us a little more. What are we talking about today with Kristen? Um, yeah, Nick. So I'm I'm extremely excited about speaking with Kristen. She she obviously runs a business that is a staple, not a business, but an agency that's a staple in town for so many different reasons. And when you and I started talking about this podcast, we designed it to talk about tech by design. And since we've launched this, we're doing two different things. We're not just designing for experiences, but we're designing the people that build those experiences. And Kristen is in this place where where she holds the key to both of those, right? She controls the way she hires people or the way the Martin agency hires people. And then she actually works with those teams or leads those teams to be able to deliver on those experiences. And I am so excited for, for the people in this podcast to, to listen to her input, to listen to the way she intentionally drives business, the way she approaches clients, and the way she actually selects that type of work or, or relies on her team better yet to select that type of work. And it's apparent they've won two years in a row. They have an incredible team basically building these types of clients. And, and, and honestly, like her feedback in, in the next 20 to 30 minutes is just going to be incredible. Absolutely. So let's get it rolling. On today's episode, Kristen Cavallo, CEO of the Martin Agency. Kristen, we're talking about excellence in design, excellence in technology. We know that Martin Agency is Adweek's 2021 US Agency of the Year, right? So that's an incredible win for the Martin Agency. It's an incredible win for the city of Richmond. Take us through the Martin Agency at a high level. What are the what are the driving factors that have led Martin to really excel in the past year? Well, it's actually been 
it's not really an overnight success, to be quite honest. And and by that, I mean, I will go back, you know, this is my second tour at the Martin Agency. And I, I believe Martin has always believed that it had a voice bigger than just a single office in an unexpected city for advertising. It has always believed that it could have a voice on culture and what topics rised to the most prevalent or talked about topics in culture. It's always believed that it could have great impact. Mike Hughes, the chief creative officer, when I was here the first time, used to talk about something called a taxicab test when he compared awards that often the agency industry gives itself compared to regular everyday people. And he would say when he would get into a taxi cab, if the cab driver said, what do you do? And he said, I'm in advertising. And the cab driver said, well, have you ever made anything I would know? And if he responded and the cab driver knew his work, that that was greater than any award that the industry would give itself. And we called it the taxi cab test. And I think Martin's work has always been part of that ether and part of that, the common vernacular of consumers, certainly with brands like Geico, but also with brands like Oreo and, and Hanes, DoorDash today, a number of brands that are not small brands. They, they have aim and ambition to be part of the national or even global fabric of people and consumers. So I would say that that's in our DNA. And um, in the last four years, I think we felt like we had taken a few steps back and needed to regain a little bit of that stature. And so we really focused hard on a handful of things, one of which was diversity and leadership. I think it was something we were not, to be honest, we weren't known for. And I believed it was a stumbling block for us to grow exponentially in the future. Every study that I'd ever read said that diverse leadership teams had higher margin, higher engagement, and higher sales. And it felt like of all the variables at my disposal or within my remit to pull as a CEO, this was one of the few that was controllable. <laughs> and so to be quite honest, I started with the few levers that I could control, and that was one. And so I pretty immediately changed the makeup of our leadership team and then set KPIs or you know goals for us as an agency to have a more diverse body of staff. Because I knew that if we had a greater diversity in our staff, we would have a, a more varied and interesting storytelling approach for our clients. And if we could tell broader and more interesting and more inclusive stories, we would inherently wrap in more people and attract more consumers for our clients' brands and drive sales. And so it felt like it was something I could do that would have a direct impact on our bottom line. That's interesting, Chris. And so a lot of this podcast is about design. And so you talked a little bit about designing for a leadership team. And so it sounds like one of the value propositions for diversity, which you know we all know is important, but sometimes it's hard to enunciate why is this important from a business standpoint. And to hear you say specifically, hey, we tell better stories and from different perspectives and more broad perspectives and more interesting, compelling perspectives because of that diversity, I think is actually one of the more specific business cases for diversity I've ever heard. I don't know about you, Alex. Yeah, same thing. I think that it could be a mistake to put a number to diversity, but I think the way you just expressed it, Kristen, is, is fantastic, right? It, it's not a number thing. It is a people thing. And and we are people that are telling a story. And I think if, if that's how you tell the diversity story, that's, that's incredible because it speaks to our city, it speaks to our culture, and it speaks to where we are going as, as, as human beings, right? 
Kristen, yep. um, you you spoke about this with me a few days ago when, when you and I were just catching up. And, and you talked about the importance of Martin and Richmond driving this push on diversity. I'd love for you to elaborate on that a little bit because, I mean, it just brings so much clarity to the story. Well, I believe that Martin has always had a bit of a chip on its shoulder because it was birthed in an unexpected ad town. And therefore, I think it's always thought of itself a bit like a challenger brand and worked harder to surprise and delight and upend, you know, whatever common metrics people would use. We also happen to have been birthed in a city that is predominantly minority driven and has in its history being the, the birthplace of the Confederacy. And as we've embarked in the past few years, but it, I think it's been happening for longer than that, a national discourse on what it means to reconcile with who we are and what we've done. I think that it makes an enormous amount of sense for the city that was the former capital of the Confederacy to become the capital of reconciliation. I believe that if we can mend some hearts and minds in this city, we will be a blueprint to other cities in the country that need to do the same thing. And so the way that we remove monuments, the way that we determine what's going to fill that space, the way that we protest or march, the way that we listen to each other all matters. It all matters because we have a greater spotlight and therefore I think also a greater sense of responsibility in solving or at least progressing in this area of reconciliation and and frankly accountability. So Kristen, when you're when you're talking and thinking about the city of Richmond and you're thinking about how to design it for the coming years and how do we get past that history and you talk about reconciliation and you talk about being a blueprint for the future, what are some elements of that blueprint that could help us reconcile as a city? How do you design that going forward and and maybe the answer is a little bit of, of you know, how you've approached things at Martin. I mean, maybe there are, are things you've learned or elements you've implemented at Martin that could be applied even at a community scale. Absolutely. And I will also say, I think it's no accident that we happen to be in such an artistic city. You know, VCU is the number one public art school in the country. We know firsthand from living in a creative industry that creativity can be a fuel towards having people see things differently, towards creating bridges, towards telling new and different stories. So I actually don't think we need to move past our role in the past. I think we need to take accountability for our role in the past. But I think that we can do that through creativity, through different kinds of stories. We have the number one sculpture program in the country. We just removed monuments, which are a form of sculpture. Let's find new ways of using sculpture to tell broader stories. Let's find, you know, we're in the top 10 cities in the world for street art. We should use street art to tell greater stories. So I think we, we are actually looking at so many tools right around us as part of the solution that I don't think we have to look very hard. I think we do need to look deeply, though, and those are two different things. I think looking deeply means taking accountability and taking ownership for what we've done and not just trying to skirt past it. But I do think that the tools with which are available and readily available all around us are very obvious. And, and so, so, Kristen, I think bringing it back to, to the Martin Agency, right, it seems like great storytelling and intentional diversity seem to be some of the driving factors behind the award that you just won. 
talk to us about how that is represented in the work you've done, right? I've seen Nerf, I've seen Sabra. Um, DoorDash. There's so much, Geico. yeah. Well, we just won spot of the year for Geico Scoop. There it is. By taking a band from my heyday uh, in the 80s and 90s uh, in tag team and revering it back into pop culture. And um, we also had the number six spot of the year with Axe, also using a black protagonist in the story. But really in that one, it's way more than that. We had to reimagine what attraction looks like in a way that it's not just men picking women, but women having an equal say and even fluidity of, of gender and fluidity of attraction. And so if you look at that, that commercial, it's so layered and so deep on so many levels as it's reinterpreted attraction for a modern age. We then, for Oreo this year, won Twitter's campaign of the year for creatively pushing the envelope of a brand that's over 100 years old. For UPS, 114-year-old brand, we just redesigned four times this year their express packages. They've never been redesigned in 114 years. And one was done for Latinx, and one was done for Black History Month, and one was done for Pride, and one for Earth Day. So we, we were still able to take our broader lens towards storytelling, but apply it from a business perspective, to the way that that brand has evolved. And they're almost modernizing in plain sight, right? And it's all of them have seen an uptick in business, which is just so validating and so wonderful. So I would, I would absolutely say there is a direct red line correlation between a broader sense of diversity in our staff to better, broader, more inclusive storytelling to stronger gains in our clients' business on the, um, on the other end. I love what you just said, modernizing in plain sight, because it, it represents so many different things, right? You you mentioned Twitter, you mentioned diversity, you mentioned storytelling, again, of 100-year-old brands. And, and, and I think modernizing in plain sight sums it up very, very well. Bringing it back to my other question, which is interactive experiences or, or multi-screen experiences. How's the agency approaching that or what's your thought on that, right? I know as, as we start building applications for our younger audience, we know that we're not captivating them on one screen, right? They might be watching television, looking at an ad, reading a magazine and, and playing a game on an app. How, how do you design for, for this passive type of consumption or, or what's your thought on that? And, and how do you modernize that experience? Well, we've done a number of things. We built a social team that almost takes the lead when it comes to defining the voice of a brand, the ability of the social team to react super fast and incredibly responsibly to consumers today has really put it on the forefront. And we build up that team internally. We encourage them. We celebrate them as being really the tip of the spear when it comes to developing the voice of the brand and our ability to communicate with consumers. We also, because it's hard to test in social, we're able to try a lot of things, quite frankly, and push the envelope of the voice of the brand and then see how consumers respond to it, which then gives clients courage in some of the more expensive broadcast media that when we go back and develop those elements, we have broader remit, quite frankly, because of the expansive voice that we've been able to establish in social. We developed a cultural impact lab, which is really taking PR and activation professionals, but embedding them into the creative process. So in the past, it would be that you would develop a piece of creative, you'd hand it to your PR team, and your PR team would 
shout it through a megaphone, hey, we have a new campaign. Today, we embed them in the process so that everything from casting to music to the choices of directors, we are actively choosing ingredients that have a higher mathematical probability of making the brand talked about. And the reason that matters is because the most talked about brands grow two and a half times faster than their competitive set. It used to be that awareness drove sales. And that's when you saw brands paying for shelf space at the eye level in a grocery store or in a Walmart, for example. Not that brands still don't do that. They do. But it is less Pavlovian that for me to be an aware of a brand and therefore for it to grow. I can be aware of Coke. I can even prefer Coke over Pepsi, but I drink water. So it's not enough for a consumer to be aware of a brand or even to prefer it. They have to talk about it. Relevance is the new bar or metric for whether or not a brand sells. There's a direct correlation between the relevance of a brand and its sales potential. And when a brand doesn't necessarily have new news, there's a direct correlation between if a ad is considered culturally relevant, it is more likely for the brand to be considered culturally relevant. So we can fill in the gap between product news or when there's not something for a brand to say by developing a culturally relevant ad, we can also drive sales if the brand doesn't have new news. So Kristen, sales is something you can measure, but how do you measure relevance or do you tie it back to sales? What What's the data point there that actually tells you you're succeeding or failing in, in the design of a particular ad? Conversation. You can measure conversation. So a 10% lift in conversation leads to a 3% lift in sales. We can, we can also, using Google Analytics, determine how often something is searched or how often it's talked about. We can study within the social sphere how much heat or salience or momentum a brand has when it comes to conversation. There are multitudes of ways of measuring conversation. That conversation becomes the barometer for relevance. And then often, how, you know, how, how much is it talked to or referred to by other brands? And in other spaces, in other ways, celebrities, endorsements, et cetera, we can amalgamate all of that into a weighted average, an impact score, so to speak. Are you able to interpret positive conversation versus negative conversation and, and delineate it in that manner as well? Does that ever come into the, the equation? It does. Interestingly, I don't think it matters from a sales perspective. And Donald Trump is a great example of someone who has generated disproportionate news, not always positive, but he's sold. However, our clients don't pay us to generate negative news. So we have to find ways to generate positive news, but also break through. It's really challenging right now to only deliver good news and have people click on it, to be quite honest, because bad news sells faster than good news. So what we have to do is hijack a negative moment in pop culture with our brand and have the brand be seen as the light in the dark. So for example, with CarMax last year, they were the sponsor of the NBA. And then we, there was a, a whole conversation being had about women athletes and, and whether or not they were fairly paid. But then it also came to be during that time that women's weight rooms were anemic compared to men's weight rooms during the time. So we sponsored the WNBA. We did a lot of work with Steph Curry and Sue Bird, where Steph Curry was actually talking about the power of Sue Bird and the fact that Sue Bird's actually a more awarded basketball player than he is. And the salesperson at CarMax was saying, can you imagine I never thought I'd come in today and, and sell to a, this kind of Olympic champion or that number of champ? And can you imagine? And Steph Curry's like, well, I'm working on it. 
Um, and it was just the right tone where he was an ally. The brand was uplifted. The conversation was uplifted. It had 89% positive sentiment among the consumers that were tested. CarMax came off very positively, as they should, but they took advantage of the negative commentary in the ether and found a way for the brand to be supportive. CarMax is the first car sponsor ever of the WNBA. So they backed it with with money and with presence that helped shine a light on a bad issue and make it a positive one. So Kristen, I once read a book that I'm paraphrasing here, but the book once said that the goal for any brand is to humanize their relationship with the people that that are engaging with them. And, and I think you you sum it up so well, right? Because you you just said conversations are the barometer for relevance, right? And and as humans, one of the things that's most important to us are those conversations, right? The conversations that we are having with those around us, the conversations that we're having with the people around us and the people we most care about. So if a brand is able to inject themselves positively or negatively into a conversation, it's, it's just a human element of who we are. And I don't think you said this, but I think it would be a mistake to only inject yourself in a positive conversation, right? Because that's not who we are as humans. And if, if as a brand, you're trying to connect and engage, then you have to, and you're, you're designing for those experiences, which is, which is incredible. I love, I love the CarMax conversation. I will add to that, that I think it takes tension to get attention. So what we often do is find negative things in the world and attach the brand to it in a positive way so that we are seen by consumers as helpful to dispelling whatever negative energy there might be there. In a way, if you can leave a consumer feeling gratitude for a brand's presence. So we didn't do this, but the way Airbnb came in and donated a number of rooms to refugees coming in. I mean, there are brands every day, Ben and Jerry, certainly, Patagonia, certainly, they're kind of the, the bar. They were the originators in this space. But the truth is today that there are many, many ways for brands to come in and leave people feeling grateful for their presence in a conversation. And that is really the goal that, that we seek because then we will inject our brands into relevant topical areas. Sometimes there's heat in those topics, but we will not be the recipients of the heat. We would be recipients of the gratitude. In design, Kristen, I mean, sometimes having a blank space or a white space or just a void actually is harder to design in because there's no constraints, there's no guidelines, there's nothing to work with. And your comment just now about running towards the tension, I think is really interesting because it's an opportunity to design for a challenge or you're presented with a challenge and you know, hey, there's an actual direct goal that we're trying to accomplish here. And this this tension provides some guidelines or constraints that we need to uh you know, hit head on. That's exactly right. In fact, you can design things in a white space. It takes a long time and you have to have a lot of money to be quite honest because you're creating a conversation out of nothing. There are plenty of conversations happening every day that need solutions and our ability to hijack those at a much more efficient and economical price point for our clients is it's just far more obvious and, and easier to do. There's, there's so much anger right now, to be quite honest, and there's so much disillusionment, and there's so many people who feel helpless that they're taking to social largely to, to talk about it. And there, there are a lot of, let's just say there's a lot of low-hanging fruit for a brand who wants to make a difference. So, so on that topic, Kristen, running, running towards something that could be a tension point, um, sustainability, right? Tis the season of joy giving and consumption, right? 
Um, <laughs> over the last few years, we've we've all witnessed debates around global warming, and I, for one, I'm really happy that those debates are now turning into real conversations and intentional like actions towards it. As an agency, how do you run towards that? How do you position your clients in in a favorable light, and and how do you continue doing what you're doing as as well as you do? Well, the first thing is we made it a priority, and we started it this year largely. So we signed with a group called Green the Bid. It's a collection of agencies and production partners that have pledged to implement green practices throughout the process. The part of the process that absorbs or contributes the most to negative environmental impact is the production process, to be quite honest. And so we just created an open source doc for anyone in the industry to use about how to offset carbon for all broad broadcast productions, we created our own proprietary carbon tracking tool. We have examples on how to do zero waste production sets and also sustainable travel. So um, from an external client perspective, and, and one thing I'll add to that, we actually added carbon offsets as a line item in every production bid because we know that every production has a carbon cost. But we know that unless we write it and make it real and put it on a piece of paper, it's going to be easy to give lip service but not actually make actionable change. So we created it, put it in our bidding process. We are looking actively and openly for production partners that value zero waste sets and carbon offsets. And we will we will pick them because of their impact and because of their beliefs in the same way that you would pick a brand that aligns with your beliefs. We will pick production partners that align with our beliefs. And so we've been upfront and honest about all of those things. And then we've done a, a number of things internally. We've centralized our waste management. Um, we've offset all of our own 2020 emissions and 2021. We're going composting. We've planted trees for shade and equity in Richmond. We put a lot of our agency time. This year we did Christmas gifts and sustainability was the theme of our Christmas gifts. So whether it be reusable wrapping paper or you know the, the actual gifts that we gave being from sustainable companies or recycled t-shirts or recycled products, we made that a, an important priority. Kristen, sustainability is essentially designing for the future in, in many ways. I mean, you're hopefully carving a path to a better future and, and hopefully making amends for some behaviors and some actions that you know we've started to repeat as in the current time. But as you look to the future, in terms of the ad world, what do you see there? What is the what is the ad world of the next 30 years look like to you? What are some things that are on your horizon that are front and center in terms of your future dashboard? What are you talking about the most? What are you looking at the most? What are you watching and, and thinking about? I mean, it is such a broad list. I, one of the silver linings of COVID, to be quite honest, was that we have shown and proven to ourselves and to and within the industry. When I say we, I mean collectively the industry. We have proven and shown that we can do virtual productions, which means the sheer volume of people on a production is decreased. That impacts the number of flights, the number of hotels, the number of attendees, rental cars, trucks, everything that happens on a shoot has been dramatically decreased. We can go back to the way it was, but we know we don't have to. We can also make it a priority when we do go back and feel the need to be present that we can find partners for whom making it a zero waste production is possible. I think the more we talk about it, I think the more you ask questions like this, these are the right questions to ask, the more we're held accountable to coming up with new solutions. And when we do, when we make it a priority, we know we can make a big impact. And I think more and more clients want to do those things too. And the truth is it's all driven by consumers and by this next generation of consumers in particular. 
they are proving that they don't want to make compromises where they don't have to. They don't want to choose between a company that is destroying the earth and makes a good product. They are challenging us as, as brands to do both. And then they're challenging us as a, a company that works with brands to find ways to do both as well. And I have a lot of confidence and faith in the next generation.